Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Jenny Skoog in New York City. On each episode, we talk with biographers about their work. This time, journalist Alison Gilbert talks about her book, Listen World, how the intrepid Elsie Robinson became America's most read woman, co-written by Julia Shears and published by Seal Press in September 2022. We recorded our interview on August 29th of this year via Zoom. Alison Gilbert, it's such a pleasure speaking with you. Who is Elsie Robinson? Elsie Robinson is an incredible American writer who no one remembers, which is why I am so thrilled to have written the first biography with my co-author, Julia Shears. We get to resurrect this heroine and bring her back to life, so to speak. How has she fallen into the cracks of history? What happened? Well, I think there's many reasons why any of us fall into obscurity. I think for someone who had such a claim as Elsie Robinson in her day, she was the most well-known female newspaper columnist in the country. She was the highest paid woman columnist that the media tycoon William Randolph Hearst had in his employ across the country. So the really, your question is, how could someone with such incredible fame just be lost to history? And I think there are several reasons, but one of them that I find very compelling is a stat from the National Women's History Museum that really describes, I think, the issue for many women historical figures is that only 24% of all historical figures taught in U.S. public schools, K-12, are actually women. And so that is one reason there is sexism afoot in the U.S. public school system when it comes to who we learn about and why we learn about certain historical figures. And those areas where women tend to historically have excelled or been able to show their muscle, whether it's in labor rights or civil rights or immigration or the arts or yes, even journalism, those are the areas that tend to not get as much time in U.S. classrooms. Um, When we talk about the economy or war or politics and who won this land, that's a very, as they say, a doggedly masculine approach to education. She was a feminist long before Gloria Steinem's day, and she worked in mines. She was divorced. She did all kinds of controversial things in her early life that women did not do. First of all, what a treasure to discover this person, but also how did you find her? 
Well, when you say minds, I want to be able to clarify, you are right. She made a living working in an old gold mine in California, in the motherlode territory. And she did that as a sole woman amongst a crew of men. And she did that, as you rightfully said, because she wanted a bigger life at a time where women were really constrained. She wanted that bigger life so badly that she left her marriage. She didn't have a way to support herself or her chronically ill son. So she found her way to where she could actually make a living as desperate as that was in the California gold mines. And so that part, I think, is really a wonderful part of her story. It goes to her grit. It goes to her determination for this bigger, more fulfilling life. And that writing was really her tool to get her way out, her way out of a horrifically suffocating marriage, her way out of these gold mines that were backbreaking and, you know, blood curdling type of work. And so the writing became her refuge. And so I just didn't want, I wanted to define what the mines were because that was hardcore and it was for years. How did she become a writer? She had some major persistence when her son, who was chronically ill his entire life, was bored, which of course many children get bored when they're sick, they just kind of get laid up in bed. In the time before radio, in the time before TV, and well before our cell phones, she had to entertain her son. And so she drew, she drew him pictures, she drew him stories. And so she knew she had talent as a children's writer and a children's illustrator. And that became her beginning. She went into the Oakland Tribune newspaper in California, and she wanted that editor to give her that first shot. And he did. And she became wildly successful in the Bay Area. I mean, parades were held in her honor. Kids wrote into the Aunt Elsie section of the Oakland Tribune for the chance to get their stories printed, to get their drawings published. And so she became a phenomenon in the Bay Area. And that only grew once the parents started paying attention, because then they became very interested in who Elsie Robinson was for their kids and how she was showing up for them, offering advice and counsel through incredibly dramatic times. You know, this was right around World War One, And so that's when she really became so incredibly well thought of in the Bay Area. And that's when William Randolph Hearst began to take notice slowly because she started writing for adults. That caught his eye because again, she was somewhat of a unicorn. Not only did she know how to write, but she knew how to draw. And so when William Randolph Hearst took notice and brought her into his fold in 1924, it was in part not just because she was a spectacular writer, and she was. She wrote crisply. She wrote with short sentences that just popped and like flew off the page. But also because she also drew her own editorial and political cartoons to accompany her writing. And that was something that nobody else was doing. And still, by the way, 
is completely uncommon even today. Writers tend to write, artists tend to draw, and it is very rare where a writer also supplies the art for his or her column. And she wasn't playing games either. When it came to her salary, you opened the book with an introduction about negotiating her salary with William Randolph Hearst himself. She had tried many times to get a higher salary with her boss and he wasn't having it. So she was like, I'm out. Like I'm going straight to the man himself. I wonder why you chose to start the book in this way with this scene. The fact that a woman writer would choose to go directly to William Randolph Hearst to appeal her case for a higher salary, to bring her reality to bear to him, to demand what she is worth, not just by her own estimation, but she did the calculus to know what kind of readership she was responsible for bringing into the Hearst media empire. I think that goes to her fortitude. I think that goes to her grit, grit learned in those gold mines that we had talked about. Again, a woman working in a man's world that continued when she became so incredibly well-known in the newspaper business. Yes, of course, it was growing in ranks of women, but in terms of that higher echelon, in terms of the people that controlled the purse strings, in terms of who would give her time off, higher pay, re, you know, negotiate her contract. Those for her were all men. And she was forthcoming and direct. And to me, to really put Elsie Robinson into context, that was the best place to begin. She had some incredible chutzpah even back then. And I think even more importantly, looking back to what she wrote to William Randolph Hearst directly, I mean, those letters that you were just talking about, those are from the 1940s. I mean, that's incredibly progressive. And I thought really set the stage for our biography of Elsie Robinson. The biography itself is very plot driven. I read it in one day. I gobbled it up, in fact, and then I went what back. Yay, that's crazy. And you use Elsie's own words extensively to drive this narrative. Where are the Elsie Robinson archives? Yeah, well, boy, I think there should be an Elsie Robinson archive. That would have made my life much easier. It would have made my co-author's life much easier. But there isn't one. We actually had to, Julia and I had to find our our paper trails mixed within the archives of the men who employed her. So we had to go to the William Randolph Hearst archive, of course, at the Bancroft Library. We, of course, had to explore her life via the Arthur Brisbane records up at Syracuse University in New York. These are important records because these men were integral into her life and really gave her a hand up. They supported her. They were advocates of her work. And there are gems, gems that we found uh, that other researchers left behind, so to speak, because Elsie Robinson wasn't germane to their work. But for us, it was like finding diamonds littered across these archives in the United States. And we were lucky for it. But nope, there isn't an Elsie Robinson uh, archive 
yet. However, I will say there should be, and we have so much that we would love to give. We have created so much original reporting. We have saved it. We have a database now of her writing, of her columns, of her editorial cartoons. And so it's extraordinary. Well, I love in the back of the book, you have a huge section called research notes, really, of where to find things, how you came across them. And that was an interesting thing to read in and of itself. But I want to turn now to the vivid details that you include in each scene, like the sounds and the smells and the descriptions from, you know, Benicia in California, where she was born and raised, to Lindenhurst, where she spent some time um, while she was married to Hornitos in California, where she uh, worked in the mines. How were you able to create this vivid imagery surrounding these places? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes, yes. So I can't answer these questions without giving the biggest shout out to my co-author, Julia Shears. She is phenomenal. She is an incredible writer. She is my partner for many reasons because we bring such different skill sets to bear. She has this incredible flair for exactly what you are describing. This kind of sensory world building. We had access to incredible documentation. Yes, of course, Lindenhurst has been raised. That's been the case for decades. I was able to find incredible reporting about that mansion where Elsie Robinson spent her early married years where she became a young mother. But putting those details into that incredible framing that you were describing, boy, Julia, great partner, incredible writer. And um, this book would not be if it wasn't for our partnership. So I am just so grateful to what she brought to the page. From what I understand, you discovered Elsie Robinson um, when you were going through your mom's papers after she had died. How did you bring Julia Shears into this project? Well, this was many, many years ago. So my mother died back in 1996, just to give you a sense of timing. And my brother and I went back to our childhood home to basically pack it up and hidden inside my mother's belongings fell out a piece of paper, you know, that old onion skin paper from years and years ago. My mother had retyped an Elsie Robinson poem, a poem that we actually include in our biography because it spoke so clearly to me in this time that I was just hurting so badly for my mom. And this poem was really about grief and loss. And I asked my brother, it was attributed to some woman named Elsie Robinson. I'm like, who is Elsie Robinson? And um, he, of course, didn't know. We thought maybe it was a friend of our mother's. We had no idea. But that set me on the course for trying to figure out who this incredible writer was. And we just kept following the paper trail. And she was this extraordinary newspaper columnist, poet, fiction writer. And the list, of course, goes on and on, kind of a Renaissance writer in many ways, because there was not one genre that she only stuck to. When I was struggling with how to put this story together, I realized that I needed someone as incredibly talented as Julia to help me frame it. I'm a journalist. I'm really good at research. I know how to tell a story, but I needed that delicate touch 
that flair that Julia has for narrative storytelling. So to me, it was just in this incredible match. Um, and we were this incredible partnership. And I am so grateful to her. And we did this all by Google Docs, basically, because I'm in New York and Julia is based in California. And we just collaborated um, with the help of technology and sharing of our source material all in folders and all discoverable with each other. We would upload and share and download and compare notes and highlight. And it was just this incredible, fluid partnership. And I think the book turned out really, really well because of it. Were there some jobs that she was specific to and then you were specific to? In other words, did one of you visit Hornitos, the post office where you where you saw her typewriter? Did you both go together? What did that look like in your research and writing process? Well, for the trip to Hornitos, we wanted to go together. So I flew out to California and we drove out to this ghost town together and we conducted interviews jointly. That was really pivotal for both of us. We both wanted to talk to people who were on the ground there. We wanted to see the landscape for ourselves in the flesh, so to speak. And we did. We actually found the current owner of the actual gold mine property where Elsie worked for years. And he took us around his property, Eric Erickson, if you're listening, he was incredible and incredibly gracious with his time and dangerous, I must add. They have around these really wide holes in the ground, they have fencing because if you go down to where these shafts were, these mine shafts were, they go hundreds of feet into the ground in some places, 600 feet below the surface of the earth, which is where Elsie Robinson would have been in these gold mines. But now cattle roam these hills and cattle um, had been falling down into these holes. And so they had to fence them off to protect the animals in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. You're the host of a docu-series on women journalists and 9-11. Your previous books cover topics of loss and resilience, grit and determination, and these themes very much bleed through with this biography. So how has your career influenced the telling of Elsie Robinson's story? I feel so strongly that my past work about journalism, my past work about grief and loss comes together, I believe, in this biography of Elsie Robinson. Of course, we've been talking about her being a journalist, she being a writer that, of course, speaks to my heart in terms of my background as being a journalist myself. And then in terms of the grief piece, Elsie Robinson suffered tremendous loss in her life. And she wrote so beautifully about grief and moving forward and how to build happiness again after that kind of incredible pain and suffering. And so to me to access her writing that was so striking about grief really put together, I guess you would call it my passions in terms of what I have written about, right? It's about the craft of writing, about how we move through grief and loss, and the fact that Elsie wrote so beautifully about these tough topics really allowed me to, I guess, interrogate her life in a way that maybe another biographer 
wouldn't have. I was really interested to know how she got through the lowest of low points when things just looked so bleak to her. How did she get herself up? But also, what was her advice to the readers of her Listen World column when they were in need of being lifted up? And so those were the columns that Julie and I really wanted to find. When she suffered the most, what was she telling her readers um, to look behind the curtain, so to speak? And so that's what I love so much. Yeah, it would make a beautiful movie, actually. You open each chapter with an image and include several others at the end of the book. How did you decide which pictures to include in this publication? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. So there was a wide array of images that we wanted to include. And of course, our publisher was like, you are not getting all those images into the book. There were just too many. And so we had to go from wide to a little less wide to more narrow. And of course, the whittling down was just so challenging. And it became a group decision. Um, There were some peripheral figures that we thought played a really important role in Elsie's life, whose images that we wanted to show. For example, we were talking about Hornitos before. There is the Rogers family that was so pivotal to Elsie's life. Moses Rogers was born a slave and he became this incredible superintendent of two powerful mines where Elsie worked. His story was so fascinating and his daughter became one of Elsie's dearest friends who got her through her time in Hornitos. And I wanted to include those pictures but we couldn't include them all. So we had to make the tough decisions. What was Elsie's story? What were her photos? What were her editorial cartoons? What did Lindenhurst look like where she lived? And so it was tough. It was really tough, but I think the images that we ended up choosing really do help propel the Elsie Robinson story forward. And we got lucky. We found photographs, I think you would agree, that are just You know, they're from the 1800s and I can't even believe we got access to them. And even her high school, well, really kind of after high school, she attended a school in Massachusetts called Northfield Mount Hermon. And from 19... Sounded like a total nightmare, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) And we found her actual photograph that she took in 1900 to support her application. Of course, you saw that in the book as well. So I think we really um, got exceptionally lucky with what images did in fact still exist. I'll tell you something that I thought was kind of remarkable is that we were talking a little bit briefly about Northfield Mount Hermon. You know, that school where Elsie Robinson attended in Massachusetts, it still exists. And the archivists there, you know, we biographers know that our research sometimes is only as good as the help that we get from the archivists who are in those institutions that we care most about. And at Northfield Mount Hermon, boy, did I get so lucky. The archivist there is on staff. He is full-time. They have kept incredible records of their students. So not only were there files and transcripts and Elsie Robinson's original application to attend the school at the turn of the 20th century, but they also had the school records of her husband 
and his brothers and his first wife because they all attended Northfield Mount Hermon. And you never know where the most incredible details will come to light. Nicknames that they call each other, sports that they used to play that, of course, maybe not particularly common today, just little lovely gems and nuggets throughout these applications. And so going back to a school where they have an archivist, that was also a stroke of luck. We had a lot of good fortune for those chapters of Listen World because they were informed by the research we were able to do at Northfield Mount Hermon. To that end, and something you were saying earlier, there were all of these interesting characters throughout her life that were sort of periphery characters in this book. How did you decide to narrow it down to just Elsie when there were so many salacious details and so many other things going on? You know, I have to give credit to Julia, my co-author. I think that it is very easy to go down numerous paths that you find so compelling, like what you were just describing. But Julia was really good at keeping us on the straight and narrow. What is Elsie's story? That is our only story. And so while Christy Kroll, her husband's story is fascinating, what part of that story serves the Elsie biography. And it's the same thing with Moses Rogers and his daughter, Luella Rogers or Leola Rogers. We saw her name being printed in a couple of different ways. That friendship was incredibly informative for Elsie Robinson. And so let's focus on that friendship between these two women, as opposed to her larger story. I went down these paths, Julia went down these paths, but she was exceptionally helpful in bringing us back to keeping us in service of Elsie Robinson's story. And so if I was wearing a hat, I would tip my hat to my co-author because she was just uh, phenomenal. And listen, we all need to be uh, smitten by our subject of our biography. And boy, we were both so smitten. And there is so much that we could have included. But of course, you want to make it tight. You want to make it clean. You want to make the story a page turner and allow the reader to keep wanting to continue on that path. And so it was a lot of editing. Um, and a lot of what gets cut, let's be ruthless because we want to have that story still grip every reader. I feel a little obsessed with her. The fact that you're obsessed, I think I've been obsessed with her since 1996, right? She's been my secret, my passion for so many years. And the fact that we now have this biography of her. I am so proud that we can all reclaim this incredible woman for ourselves, right? That we all have a, an ability to reclaim this heroine who has been overlooked and she's been forgotten. But if we can sense the pride of ownership of this American writer, I feel like we all have a role in making sure her legacy endures. There are many reasons that I feel that her legacy has been forgotten. We touched on one of those about women's histories being erased over time, but there are of course others. And so I feel that together, if we can do our part by joining Team Elsie and listening to her words and rereading her very strong, sometimes controversial opinions about 
feminism and capital punishment and racism and anti-Semitism. In many ways, she was ahead of her time. And I feel in some ways, there are so many lessons we can still learn from her writing. And so I hope when folks pick up this biography, they too can feel that they are a bit on Team Elsie. That was journalist Allison Gilbert talking with bio member Jenny Skoog about her book, Listen World, How the Intrepid Elsie Robinson Became America's Most Read Woman, co-written with Julia Shears. It was published by Seal Press, an imprint of Hatchet Book Group, in September 2022. This interview was recorded via Zoom on August 29th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Jenny Skoog in New York City. Alani Hodge created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.